Hey, this morning we're going to continue in our series in Ephesians. So uh, if you want to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. Uh, and this morning's passage can be found on page 976. And um, it is always um, just an amazing privilege to be able to open God's Word. I love the book of Ephesians. I love the message that we're able to kind of dig in and, and just expose our hearts to. Um, because one of the things that we say a lot around here um, really is one of our core values that kind of defines who we are as a people is we believe that grace absolutely changes everything. We believe that Grace is big enough not only to change a heart and a life, but we also believe that grace is big enough to change our city. And so we're passionate about seeing that message take deeper root in our lives and in our hearts and seeing that make its way into the community, right? So we are passionate that that happens. We want to kind of reclaim Christianity from the do more, try harder crowd to the good news crowd. This is a message of good news about Jesus. And um, the book of Ephesians is a gift to us in that regard. It helps expose us. And that's why we're um, spending a lot of time. We're we're in chapter one. We're only going to cover three verses this morning because we've been looking at this whole idea of identity and the way that we view ourselves and I mean, if we're honest, um, we all have varying self-images of ourselves. But God is passionate that we would see ourselves the way that he sees us. He wants us to see and define ourselves not by our circumstances or um, whether we do good things or bad things. He wants us to define ourselves by who we are in Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and then see that flow from us out into the world. And it really is, as that takes place, the invisible God is made visible through his church. And that's what we are seeing in the book of Ephesians. This morning we're going to look at the the big idea of redemption, that we are redeemed people. And uh, I'm going to start in an unusual place. I'm going to do my version of Masterpiece Theater. Um, I wish I had some impressive, obscure foreign film that I could kind of break down for you. But I'm going to start with Groundhog Day, the 1993 Bill Murray classic. If you are too young to have seen that movie Um, immediately when you leave here, go and watch Groundhog Day. I love Groundhog Day because, um, really, there's just some simple brilliance in the movie. I don't don't know if you're a Bill Murray fan. Um, But, I mean, just the the day that continues and never ends, and it starts with a a Sonny and Cher song every morning, right? And then, but what I really love is kind of the evolution of the characters. So you meet people like Ned, right? The insurance salesman, Ned Ryerson, and he says, Bing, right? You know that? Okay, that didn't work as well as I was hoping. So I I was anticipating everybody to know that Ned Ryerson says Bing. So anyway, um, there is this evolution of the characters. um, But what happens to Bill Murray's character? I mean, he has this unattractive um, assignment of seeing whether Poxitani Phil actually sees his shadow and there's going to be, either be six more uh, weeks of 
uh, winter or um, is it going to be an early spring? And in that thing, he has this never-ending task of trying to have what we all tried to have is that elusive concept of the perfect day, right? You remember the film? So um, he's trying more each and every day to make that day better than the one before. So I mean, he does some crazy things, and he does all of this to impress a lady. He learns French. He learns to play the piano. He develops a relationship with a homeless man. And he does all of this, right, to try to make one day better than the first, right? So as I was thinking about Ephesians chapter 1, I said, that defines a lot of how we try to live the Christian life, right? If we're honest... We're all in pursuit of that elusive, perfect day. And we're willing to kind of do everything. And it really ends up us trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? Trying to change ourselves. And it it ends up being this kind of self-improvement project for us. But what we understand from the beginning this morning is that when we try to change ourselves we ultimately end up giving up and burning out. And God is wanting to encourage us this morning that he has something better for us. Instead of running to a self-improvement project this morning, we get to run to a Savior, right? Instead of doing more and trying harder, we get to rest in it is finished from Jesus Christ. So instead of fixing ourselves, right? I mean, if if God just wanted us to fix ourselves, he could have written us a memo of nine steps to be a better person instead of sending a son to the cross. But the good news is God is more committed to changing us than we are committed to changing us. Listen to this quote from the book Redemption by Mike Wilkerson. He says, this is a quote, he says, As Paul Tripp says, We do not live our lives based on the bare facts of our existence. We live our lives according to our interpretation of those facts. In other words, it's not our raw experiences that determine our lives, but the meaning we make of them. The stories we tell and the stories we believe. Out of those stories, we live our lives. So what he's saying there is... We're always interpreting. We're always living out some story. And Ephesians chapter 1 is about a better story that God invites us to believe about Him, and it's going to change the way that we view ourselves. This morning we're going to look at Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, and we're going to see the story of redemption. We're going to unpack that. But really, as we begin to unpack this, we're going to see that God uses that to unpack our hearts. But for context, and because this is such a powerful prayer, we're going to read verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here's our verses. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we just quiet our hearts and our lives at the end of what could only be considered a chaotic week where we were pulled in a million different directions, having expectations of one thing and seeing other things come about. I just pray that you would refocus us and center us on your word. To do that, we need your spirit to come and to be active to illuminate your word so that your word isn't just words on a page, but it's words that bring life and health and peace and forgiveness. I pray that that's the experience of everyone that's in this room, that they would tangibly walk out the door feeling lighter because of what Jesus has done. To do that, I need your help. You know how weak I feel right now. You know just the natural tiredness that comes over me um, after a long weekend. And I just pray that you would help me to proclaim this word to my friends that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. So the big concept that we're going to look at this morning is the word redemption. Right? It's a word that you will see often in Christian literature. It's a word that you will see in songs a lot. But we don't always slow down to kind of mine the riches of words like redemption. And so um, I'm, we're going to unpack three aspects of redemption this morning because I believe God wants to do some heart surgery for us this morning. He wants to help us deal with the problems of our past. Like he really does want us to be able to turn the page. And so the first aspect that's going to help us deal with the problem of our past is that we have a new status. Redemption means having a new status. It means being forgiven. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So easy to say, but so often hard 
to experience. At the core of redemption is the message of forgiveness. Right? One of the main reasons, and, and, and a real common experience for almost everyone that claims to follow Jesus Christ is the problem of feeling forgiven, right? Like you can know intellectually that the scriptures say that God forgives all of our sins, but we also have this magical thing called a conscience. And sometimes it's really hard for us to remind ourselves and to bring our consciences in alignment with what God says about us, with the message of forgiveness. And we're going to unpack a little bit of why that is First of all, it's because forgiveness is a status that we experience, right? Forgiveness first is, uh, it's a legal word before it's a relational word. Forgiveness um, is tied up with the one that actually has the power to forgive, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll take it out of the realm of the abstract because the invisible God is hard for us to get our minds around. But I mean, just imagine this scenario, right? I mean, you're out of work for six months or so, and like you're running out of money, you've blown through your savings, and a friend like decides to throw you a lifeline and very generously gives you $30,000, right, to kind of keep you afloat, right? That's, that's a good friend, right? I don't know how many of you have friends like that. If you're in college, you're probably saying, I don't know, I have any friends like that. Anyway, the friend gives you $30,000, and slowly like you rebuild your life and you get back on your feet. You begin a job, begin working it out. And, and your friend, you know, after a couple of years, he says, you know what, I'm going to release you from your debt, right? Now, the trick with that is that may or may not seem like good news to you at that moment. You may or may not feel forgiven of that debt, but your friend actually has the power to forgive your debt. You may still want to try to pay your friend back for the debt that you owe, but legally, right, you are forgiven of that debt. Well, the same concept applies to God's forgiveness, right? It is first a legal word, and then it is the relationship that we enjoy with God that helps us to experience that. The truth about forgiveness is, and this is the good news of the gospel, and this is why this never gets old, that on the cross of Jesus Christ, right, that we were forgiven in a moment and an instant, legally, finally, forever. We were given full pardon for all of our sins, past, present, and future, not dependent on anything that we do, but solely dependent on what Jesus did for us, right? So forgiveness is a status that we enjoy. And then that, if you view it primarily as a relational word before it's a legal word, right, our consciences get tripped up. But the truth is that we need to look to the objective truth of what God has done in and through Jesus. And then we get the intimacy and the relationship and the joy with Jesus. Forgiveness is a status that we hold and it leads to a relationship that we can enjoy. And this is the reason why this is true. We have redemption and forgiveness through His blood. Grace is free, and we love to sing about grace. Never get tired of that. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. 
right? It came at the expense of God's own son on the cross, bearing the penalty for every sin that we commit past, present, and future. So grace is free, but it is not cheap. It's easy for us to gloss over this and forget this. But, but listen to this and let this speak to your conscience in those areas where you struggle. Just like the hymn, How Firm a Foundation says, What more can he said than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? What more can God say to you and to your conscience except it is finally and fully paid for because of the sacrifice of my son. Receive the status as forgiven sons and daughters of the king, right? So it's not primarily a a relational word first. It's first a legal word. We are forgiven because our debt has been paid in and through the death of Jesus. But... When we begin to talk about the experiential, relational side of forgiveness, right? This is where the rubber meets the road. Because I I don't think if you've been around church any any time, I've said anything to this point that would cause you to have pause or concern. But the truth of the book of Ephesians is God actually wants you to enjoy that status. Right? He doesn't want it just primarily to be a legal word. He wants it to be like a warm blanket that we rest our souls in. And there are some real things that we tend to believe on, if not a daily basis, a weekly basis that keep us from enjoying the gift of forgiveness. I'm going to unpack a couple of them for you. The first one is what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls that one sin. That one sin that when you look back on it, it causes your strength to leave you. It causes you to instantly be ashamed. It causes you to question whether or not you may even know God at all. We're talking about that thing that consistently trips us up. That thing that we wish that we could forget. Like if it's that one thing that continues to dominate our perspective and rob us of joy in the present. It's that one sin. And really this is the the core of this issue for us is transactional living, right? We we view God like he is an Olympic judge, right? So, you know, he judges sins on a scale of one to ten. And he says, yeah, that that was great. That was a 9.95 there on that effort, right? We view God taking record of our sins from zero to 10, right? Like some sins are really easy for God to forgive. And some sins are more difficult for God to forgive. The truth is though, like according to God's word, there are only two options, perfection or failure. We're either a law keeper. That means that we have always perfectly obeyed God. We have always kept his law or we are lawbreakers. So by definition, we are all lawbreakers and we needed someone to come into the world and take our place for our sins and obey in our place. 
So it's not as if some sins are harder to forgive than others. They are all forgiven the same way through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so the trick for us this morning is that thing that plagues you, that thing that keeps you up at night, that thing that makes you want to run and hide in shame, it is that very thing that God wants to speak his word of redemption and forgiveness into your soul. Listen to this quote from Spiritual Depression from Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about that one sin. Now, don't push that one sin out of your mind. Let this speak to you. He says, my trouble, you say, my trouble is that terrible sin which I have committed. Let me tell you in the name of God that it is, that is not your trouble. Your trouble is unbelief. You do not believe the word of God. I'm referring to the first epistle of John and the first chapter where we read this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to this. That is a categorical statement made by God, the Holy Spirit through his servant. There is no limit to it. There is no differential between sin and sin. Speak that to your conscience. I cannot see any qualification at all. Whatever your sin is, it is as wide as that. It does not matter what it is. It does not matter what it was. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you do not believe that word, and if you go on dwelling on your sin, I say that you are not accepting the word of God. You are, taking God you, you are not taking God at his word. You do not believe what he tells you. And that is your real sin. So let that word speak to you. He is faithful and just. It is through his blood we have redemption and forgiveness. Forgiveness means we have a new status. Another hang-up that we have is the myth of forgiving ourselves, right? How many of us have played that game before in our minds or in our hearts? Say things like, I know God forgives me for this sin, but I can't forgive myself. What's going on there? What's at the heart of that is somehow we think we take sin more seriously than God does, right? I mean, there's just a, a subtle form of pride that, that kind of goes on that, yeah, that, that in the court of our own consciences, maybe God can forgive it, but I can't forgive myself. And it is the height of arrogance for us to say such a thing. Like, and really, and this is, I mean, this is the number one issue. You want to know? what your pastor struggles with, it's this issue right here. Because oftentimes I'm not, I'm not overly concerned that I just sinned against God. You can ask my wife. I'm more concerned that I sinned against my ideal version of myself, right? Because, you know, I think I'm a pastor. Like I should have everything together that I shouldn't have any more struggles. And I have that groundhog day thing playing through my head that I'm supposed to pursue a perfect day every day. And every day should be better than the day before. Right. And when, when I fail to live up to my own expectations of myself, right, my conscience suffers, my joy suffers. But the truth of the matter is that God speaks 
for all of our sins. <laughs> we have to say to ourselves, if God forgives us, if he has sins that he cannot Remember that we're not called to remember them, that God wants to forgive us from beginning to end. And so if there's something that you are holding against yourself, I would encourage you to lay it at the feet of the Savior and experience his forgiveness. It's really irrelevant whether you forgive yourself or not, but God wants to forgive you in and through Jesus. He wants your conscience to come alive. The final hang-up, I think, that I want to unpack for us uh, about forgiveness is that God grows weary in forgiving us, right? Um, And this this probably plagues us more than anything. And I remember being a little boy and just, I mean, sitting in a room like this, just being terrified, right? I mean, hellfire, brimstone, all of that. And I remember a pastor, like, getting up and saying, he's like, If you ask God for forgiveness too often, you're going to be like the little boy that cried wolf, right? He's going to grow weary of answering you, right? There's nothing more anti-gospel than that. God delights to forgive sinners. Like he came into the world to save sinners from beginning to end. He's not like Ebenezer Scrooge, like where Bob Cratchit wants to have like a couple of pieces of coal to kind of warm up the fire. No, what does it say? Look at the rest of the verse. Verse seven, it says that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. How? According to the poverty of his grace? No, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So God is not poor in forgiveness. He is rich in grace and he is rich in mercy. And he loves nothing more than for people to come to him and take him up on the gift of his son. He delights in forgiveness. He is not a begrudging father, right? That's the good news of the gospel. So wear out the doors of heaven when your soul is burdened and when you are lacking joy and know that you have a father that delights to bring forgiveness because he's already paid for it on the cross. And that's the truth about redemption. It's a status that we enjoy that leads to a relationship that we can live in. So where are you burdened this morning? Bring it to the feet of the Savior. Bring it to the hill called Calvary. Forgiveness is already yours. Enjoy the relationship. So this means that we have a new status, redemption means, but it also means that we have a new power. A new power. The word redemption finds its origin in the slave market. Now I want to be super clear here. Slavery is always um, condemned in Scripture. Um, In all of its forms, it is a product of the heart of sinful man. But God chose intentionally to use this word redemption because of the freedom aspect that it communicates to us, right? It is other places in Scripture, it defines us as being slaves of sin, right? All of us know that kind of weariness that comes from trying to change ourselves, right? By trying to turn over a new leaf. If you're like me, um, (laughs) a couple of 
weeks into the new year, that new leaf has come and gone, right? I mean, we all know that wearying effect of, yeah, I'm going to do better this time, and um, it's not even February, and I'm not even close. So um, if that's freeing, that's the gospel, right? I mean, and for all of you that are keeping it going, you're just, <laughs> you just have more self-discipline than the rest of us. Um, but redemption is a word of freedom. We once were slaves to sin, and, and really the price that is paid to free us is called a ransom. Jesus gave his life as a ransom to set us free. And this is where, like if you've been around church world at all for very long, like this is the most difficult thing for you to believe that God can actually change you from where you are right now to make you more like Jesus Christ, right? Because we have tried and we have failed over and over again. And most of the reason that we try and fail is because we try to do it in our own strength. But the good news of redemption and the good news of the book of Ephesians is God is in the burden-lifting business. Like, He actually wants us to experience freedom. He actually has given us power in and through Jesus so that we can be different. I love that He speaks this word to the Ephesians because their struggle is exactly our struggle. Like, the Ephesians, like if you were to take a survey of the Ephesian church... They were a group of people that were riddled with fear. And I don't mean just like an occasional, like I wonder what's going to happen in the future. I'm talking about like pull the cover over your head kind of fear. Like I don't want to get up and face the day kind of fear. Because what they were into was like a form of the occult where there were all these warring spirits. And every one of them were out to harm them, right? Now, we may not think that that's true of us in our everyday life, but we are always consistently like imagining the worst case scenario, do we not? Right? That is our right in passage as Americans is to be riddled with anxiety and fear. You compound that with the fact that in the temple of Artemis, one of the main ways that they worshipped was through cult prostitutes and through the sex act. So when they got together for church... Like, that's what was going on. And so when the gospel came immediately, right, that those kinds of things stopped. But can you imagine, like, what that church meeting was like on a Sunday morning, right? Where they were coming out of that. They were asking themselves questions just like we ask. How in the world can God fix this? Like, how in the world could God change this situation? And God gives us this promise and this truth of redemption that God is more passionate about changing us than we are passionate about changing us, right? The measure of his resolve to set us free is the death of his own son. And so we don't have to trust in our own efforts or our own strength. Redemption means that God is more committed to changing you than you are committed to changing you. Listen to this. This is my favorite quote from Richard Sebs. He says, There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. He's more committed to changing us at our point of need, right? So where do you feel stuck this morning? Where do you feel like you have a pattern that you can't change? Where are you most tempted to throw in the towel? That's where God wants to tell you this morning that you have a new power. And the power comes through the grace and the mercy of Jesus. The question for us this morning is, 
Will you trust God to change you more than you changing you? Because if we're honest, right, and I have these areas too, I've quietly resigned that it's always going to be this way. God wants to speak a better word to all of us. He wants to speak to us the word of redemption, that we all have new power. So what would be pleasing to the Lord would be thinking about that area that you feel hopeless in and saying very simply, Lord, I trust you. I trust you to work. I trust you to change me. I know you're more committed to this than I am. So it's a new status that we have. It's a new power. But finally, it's a new story that we get to live in. Redemption means that God swallows up our past and gives us a hope and a future, right? That's the, that's the beauty, and right? Like, we all love the story of redemption. Like, almost every movie that is in existence, like, plays off of the theme of redemption because everybody loves the story of redemption. I'm just more familiar with sports movies, but, I mean, anything from Rudy, right, to the Bad News Bears, like, there's always this degree of conflict and failure that like exists like in in somebody's life and then like there's a a crescendo and it's usually with self-effort so you have to kind of put the gospel in there but then finally at the end of the movie right we're like we're going wild with the crowd like at the end of rudy because rudy got in the game and he made the tackle right (laughs) and this is this is for all my friends that have sports teams that are really good and i'll look on this side of the room like Nobody gets excited about the best team playing the best game over and over again. Everybody loves an underdog. That's why March Madness is so popular, because the world longs for redemption, right? The, the, the world longs to see the good news of the gospel come to bear. <laughs> the good news of redemption is we get a new story. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us. This means that God uses everything in your story, good and bad, to tell his story. God is committed to us being those story makers and storytellers with our lives. So the good news of redemption, because God is giving us a a new hope and a new future, is you don't have to edit anything out. God knows it all, and he's committed to using it all. And if you're like me, I mean, that's what you love about Scripture, right? It's not like the guys that nail it and get it right all the time. Like, you love, you love it when somebody falls and Jesus' grace helps them, right? So David, you know, we love that he wrote the Psalms, but we also love that, like, I mean, he was a guy that failed, and he, know, he knew what it was like to need forgiveness. Like, we can identify with a person like that. The same with Peter, right? I mean, he jumped out of the boat, but there's part of us that smiles when he, like, goes underneath the water because we know that's what would happen to us. Like, we love to see God's story and God's redemption and work in people's lives. God's ability to use us is not dependent on us having a spotless resume, right? God uses it all. God is an expert at using incredibly crooked sticks to draw straight lines for the gospel, right? That's the good news, that we have this treasure, right? 2 Corinthians 4, in 
jars of clay, cracked pots, ordinary things to show an extraordinary God and an extraordinary gospel. You may be here this morning and you say, you don't know how bad I've blown it. You don't know how much of a wreck I've made of my life. The truth of redemption for you here this morning is you may feel like you've destroyed it all and you've killed it all. But listen to this. If you are still living and you are still breathing, God is not finished with you yet. Right. As long as you are on planet Earth, you are here to tell a story about the redeeming grace of God. We have a God that raises the dead. And we're going to see in just a couple of weeks that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise your your story to new life to tell a better story about him and his grace. So you are not stuck in your past. You are not defined by your past. This means that failure for the believer in Jesus Christ is not terminal. It is not the end of the story. We are, uh, we are the recipients of his grace and we get to rejoice in what he has done and his finished work. Redemption means we get a new story. Look at verses 9 and 10. Just going to hit on this briefly. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So part of us living in this new story is us telling the story that everything is going to be united in Jesus Christ. So that's where this becomes corporate, right? Whereas people that have experienced redemption, our passion is for the world to experience that same kind of redemption. When it says everything's going to be united in Jesus Christ, it means that everything that's broken is going to be healed by the good news of Jesus. It means, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, that everything that's sad is going to come untrue. So that means as the people of God, like we are the people that love to proclaim this message of redemption. So just, just think about this in a couple of contexts with me. Redemption in your marriage. Think about a new story for your spouse. What if you lived in a new, what if you allowed your spouse to live in that new story that God is not finished with them yet? That they are a person in progress, that they are not defined by their past and their failures. How would that transform your marriage? Think about this, students. Redemption on your campus, right? The campus of Arkansas State is not primarily defined by its darkness and its lostness and its religious burnout. It is defined by a group of people that are longing to experience redemption and hope and forgiveness. That changes the way you you look at the world from hopelessness to faith, right? That God is not finished with what he's doing. He's going to bring all things under the head, Jesus Christ. Same way, like if as we live out community here in a gospel community. Like that's the story that we should be most passionate about speaking into each other's lives, right? That it is finished because of Jesus, but he's not finished with you, right? You may be lost, you may be stuck, you may be discouraged, you may be tired, but God is committed to changing you. That's what redemption looks like on the ground. And then there's just a day coming 
when redemption will be complete. Like, we have to consider this. This is our hope. That there's going to be a day when we don't have to strive to be better anymore. Just think about that. There's going to be a day when you don't wake up with a to-do list pressing in on you. There's going to be a day when you don't have to live with the fear of being exposed anymore. There's going to be a day when we are absolutely swallowed up by this greater story. And that's the story that's meant to inform how we live out life. It's the good news of the gospel, right? This isn't about us. This isn't about what we do. It's about what he's done. But it has massive implications for our soul and for our joy. And I, I hope you noticed this, like as we read this. This is a, a prayer. This is also worship, verses 3 through 14. Three times in here it says, to the praise of his glory. That's why we're slowing down, because we want to praise his glory. We want to remind ourselves, because it's so easy just to kind of go through the motions and go through the week. But God... <laughs> allows us the privilege of coming face to face with his greater story. And so we're going to just continue to worship him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you that you're not finished with anyone in this room. I pray that you would give us hope in and through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe redemption and forgiveness. We have power to change because of the cross. I pray that those things would begin to unearth some bad patterns of thinking that we have and that you would allow us to experience your nearness and your grace. Father, I pray that you would literally set people free. I pray for those that are tempted to hide right now, that you would call them by your grace to come home and to receive the gift of your forgiveness. I pray that the chains of the past would fall off for some. They would no longer be defined by that one sin that plagues them. They would experience grace. I pray that we would be a community that offers that, all because of what Jesus has done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.